did they like update their did they update their streaming service or something like that so that like you have to be a certain tier for live coverage they, they must have but then i was like chatting i chatted both xfinity and abc and and they were both like oh it's the other person's problem naturally and then <laughs> i finally was talking to abc and then i got ghosted by them so <laughs> katie gets ghosted by abc that's ghosted. <laughs> happy valentine's day to me i got ghosted by abc <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Talking Underwater. One water, one podcast. I am Katie Johns, Editor-in-Chief of Stormwater Solutions. And I'm Bob Crossan, Editor-in-Chief of Wastewater Digest and Editorial Director for the Endeavor Water Group. In this month's episode of Talking Underwater, we will discuss the Norfolk Southern East Palestine train derailment's impact on surface and groundwater in eastern Ohio and western Pennsylvania. Additionally, we touch on new funding for emerging contaminants and drinking water through the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law. And finally, our interview this month is with W&T Contracting Corporation co-owners and brothers Wiley and Terrell Richards about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the water industry. But before we jump into the news, we also have a cool offer to share with you. Later this year, we will be hosting StormCon in Dallas, Texas from August 29th to 31st. Exclusive to this podcast is a 10% registration discount. Visit bit.ly slash stormconreg2023 and use the code one water 10 all caps to get 10% off your registration for the show. But first, Bob, uh, please share some news with us. Yeah, so this news is about the Norfolk Southern East Palestine train derailment and kind of the impacts that this has because it was carrying hazardous chemicals. Um, during a press release on February 14th, the governor of Ohio, Mike DeWine, discussed kind of the what happened, which was essentially that on February 3rd at around 9 p.m., a train derailed and there were certain cars that were carrying hazardous materials. The number that he used for that was 10 cars. Two two days later, there were concerns about temperatures rising and the fire had broken out and there was really a concern that there was a fear of an explosion. So they evacuated the area and now everything has transitioned to concerns over air quality and water quality. One of the biggest concerns here was about local wildlife and the impact that it would have not only on aquatic species, but also non-aquatic ones. According to the director of Ohio Department of Natural Resources, Mary Mertz, the initial impact of the derailment and the chemicals that were released at that time impacted Sulphur Run, which leads into Leslie Run and then to Bull Creek and then a portion of the North Fork of Beaver Creek, which eventually leads to the Ohio River. So it's several streams and tributaries leading to a major river being the Ohio River. They looked at all of these waterways over a 7.5-mile area. They estimated that 3,500 dead fish uh, were, or fish were killed during this, uh, amounting to a total of 12 different species, but they indicated that to their knowledge, none of the species that were killed during this chemical release are threatened or endangered in terms of like federal lists and whatnot. They also said that there's no increase in the initial uh, since the initial days of a derailment, meaning that there were no more deaths of aquatic life or non-aquatic life since then, and they had no evidence to support non-aquatic species were suffering from the chemical release due to the derailment. 
Now, lastly, there was also Tiffany Kovalek. She's the chief division of the surface water at Ohio EPA. She said that Norfolk Southern is actively aerating Sulphur Run and that they contained 1.3 miles of Sulphur Run that leads into Leslie Run, meaning that they contain the water flow there and they're not letting it run into the further tributaries and they're continuing to do testing on the water quality further downstream. Now, ahead of that containment, the water quality tests showed, quote, very little contaminant levels and mostly fire residuals. They said that this was the case on February 4th, so the day after this event. Further testing on February 10th showed only two contaminants, butyl acrylate and ethyl hexyl acrylate, both of which are considered volatile organic chemicals. The butyl acrylate, they said, dissipates to non-detect levels once it gets to the north fork of Little Beaver Creek, and the other dissipates to non-detect by the time it gets to Little Beaver Creek. There was no detection of vinyl chloride in the downgradient waterways, they said, and all data is available on the Ohio EPA website titled East Palestine's Train Derailment, so you can get all the details of the actual numbers from the Ohio EPA. They noted, though, that the spill... Because of the connection of all those waterways, the spill did flow into the Ohio River during the initial slug, as they called it. And due to its size, the EP, due to the size of the Ohio River, the EPA believes that it will dilute the pollutants rather quickly. And even then, there is an agency called Orsenko, which is the Ohio Regional Water Sanitation Commission, I believe, is tracking this with water quality in real time. And they're noting that it's moving at about one mile per hour. And this is allowing them to tell certain utilities that are along the Ohio River that have drinking water intakes there when to either shut off that intake or to be concerned about potential contamination from this derailment. What they noted, though, is that with advanced treatment, namely oxidation treatment technologies and activated carbon technologies – these contaminants are not really that big of a concern. So if you are a an engineer or a consultant or a plant manager or an operator along the Ohio River that's dealing with someone's facility along the Ohio River and oxidation or activated carbon is already in place, the chances this that, that this has a like huge impact on your operations is pretty low, it sounds like. The Ohio EPA also said that they are, quote, pretty confident these contaminants are not being passed along to the consumers because of those technologies. So that's the update that I wanted to have on that. I thought it was it was very interesting, obviously a very scary moment for everyone who lives in that area, and our, our hearts certainly go out to people who are evacuated, who are concerned about an explosion and whatnot. Um, and for anyone who is listening to this who's directly impacted by it from a, on a professional or personal level. If you feel comfortable contacting us to tell us your story, we would be more than happy to share that with our audience. Just reach out to us using Talking Underwater at EndeavorB2B.com. Awesome. Thanks for all that information, Bob. I know that it's quite a complicated topic, so I don't, I mean, have we don't have a ton of, you know, speculation or anything to add. We just want to get the facts out to everyone. So we will keep, uh, you know, reporting it and, and, sharing the impacts to surface water and groundwater um as we can but like you said our hearts go out to everyone that had to evacuate and um hopefully things can return to a semi-normal state for them soon yeah well one thing i didn't mention on this that is that the epa did send a letter to the railroad company called a general 
potential liability concern or something of that nature, essentially saying like, hey, you may be liable for CERCLA related activities surrounding the cleanup or damages that were imposed by this. And so there is a CERCLA element to this. I'm not quite very versed in what that exactly means at this point. And the letter from EPA was mostly just saying, hey, this potential does exist, but didn't place any blame on the uh, on, on the railroad at this time. So it was really just more of an inf- informing them, we are aware of this situation that occurred. It likely is, will be governed by CERCLA or Superfund, and that if that's the case and you are at fault in any way, shape, or form, you would have to basically pay back the EPA for any damages that were incurred or cleanup efforts that were taken undertaken. So, Got it. All right. Well, we will be keeping track of that yeah. for sure and, and seeing what unfolds there. <laughs> Highly complex. Yes, absolutely. Um, Well, before we share our interview this month, I did have one more um, news item to share. The U.S. EPA has recently announced the availability of $2 billion in funding from the bipartisan infrastructure law to address contaminants in drinking water through the EPA's Emerging Contaminants in Small or Disadvantaged Communities Grant Program. An EPA press release said, quote, these grants will enable communities to improve local water infrastructure and reduce emerging contaminants in drinking water by implementing solutions such as installing necessary treatment solutions, end quote. The press release also noted that the bipartisan infrastructure law invests $5 billion over five years to reduce the levels of contaminants such as PFAS in drinking water. This initial allotment of the $2 billion to states and territories can be used to prioritize infrastructure and source water treatment for pollutants and to conduct water quality testing. Additionally, the EPA announced that it is also releasing the Emerging Contaminants in Small or Disadvantaged Communities Grant Implementation Document. Um, so again, nice to see some funding uh, slowly begin to trickle down, and um, we'll we'll keep track of where the other you know three billion dollars from this from this goes. Yeah, one of, obviously PFAS being a big issue here is it's great to see money really starting to move on that front given all of the regulatory efforts that EPA is undertaking on that on that side of things. Even though we don't have an MCL yet, we don't have an MCLG, we're not really totally understanding the situation that will occur with biosolids quite yet because EPA hasn't released anything. Um it is good to see that there is money flowing because we do know that there are certain technologies that can directly solve the at least the treatment equation of it and really all the other sides of, of things is just kind of understanding what the cradle to grave looks like more so than the actual treatment efforts. And then the last thing I'd note on this, I really am excited to see the small and disadvantaged community grant implementation document going out. I think the small communities have really struggled to find funding for years and years. And I think this could be a really big impact for a lot of rural communities that need some help with their water systems. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, it's great to see that coming down and going to communities that really need and uh, can utilize it. Well, with that, let's dive right into our interview. So this month, I spoke with Wiley and Terrell Richards, who are brothers and co-owners of W&T Contracting Corporation. We talked about their career paths, um, what their company does, and a little bit about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the water sector. So here is my interview with them.
Hello, everyone, and welcome to Talking Underwater. I am Katie Johns, and today I am joined by Wiley and Terrell Richards, who are the co-owners of W&T Contracting Corporation. Um, this episode, we are going to be talking about diversity, equity, and inclusion in the water industry and getting to know a bit more about W&T Contracting Corporation. So, Wiley and Terrell, thank you so much for being here today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for inviting us. Yeah, of course. Happy, happy to have you both. Um, so just to kind of get us started and, and lay a foundation for us here, can you each um, explain your career path and how you've kind of ended up where you are today? Uh, yes. Uh, as children, our father was in the construction uh, business as doing underground utilities, and he would allow us to come out to job sites as early as eight. <laughs> and I kind of you know got a feel for the construction industry and so forth, and we, and we got the construction bug. Uh, we were always you know never afraid of hard work, and we and we love we love getting up early, and so that kind of you know set us, I guess, in the right foundation as as to what we're doing today. So after attending college, we both went out in the private sector for a little while, but I initially returned. To help our father maintain the fledging business, which wasn't doing very well financially. Uh, continue to take, you know, other courses to gain more knowledge in construction management and begin began to form more professional relationships in the industry. So that along with combined experience, create the tools to sustain the business and grow. So we've been awarded projects in several small municipalities throughout the Mississippi and Tennessee area. And after Hurricane Katrina, there were more opportunities on the coast. So we Worked on the coast from 2006, 2014, repairing a lot of uh, infrastructure, a lot of sewer lines, storm drain lines, did a lot of work for years and years, traveled a lot. And that's kind of how we got going in the, in, the, in this construction business. Just to add a little more to that. Um, yeah, absolutely. After Hurricane Katrina, as you know, there was um, a wrong, the economy took a nosedive and there was a lot of federal dollars being spent on the Gulf Coast to rebuild. And so mm -hmm. we to be a part of that. And, and I will say, honestly, um, there were a lot of jobs and so forth that were going on um, in our area in the Mid-South. But once the economic downturn occurred, most of the, the federal dollars were being spent on the Gulf Coast. So naturally, we decided, hey, let's go to the Gulf Coast. We had some relationships formulated and, and we saw you know, some opportunities there. And that's where we kind of primarily took most of our operations because we felt as though that was the best opportunity to stay, you know, gainfully employed and also grow our business and so forth. So that's what we did. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for all that context. And so it sounds like both of you had pretty similar similar career paths. So can you kind of talk me through how you guys ended up starting W&T um, Corporation and, and what, um, you know, your sole purpose is for your company? Uh, yes, W&T Contracting Corporation was formed in 1997, uh, you know, as as a re, you know, kind of rebranding from a another smaller company that my father had started. Uh, you know, while working out of town for several years, I read online that the city of Memphis was about to go on a federal consent decree to handle their sewer overflows. Mm -hmm. So the city of Memphis had to institute a plan to repair the sewer infrastructure. So we we attended several meetings. What the city was was talking about the upcoming work and all the opportunities, so we we thought, well, man, this would be a good niche for us because this is the industry that we're in. So right. we need to, you know, we need to be a part of this. So, <coughs> excuse me, 
The Sid Memphis hired their program manager and established a program called SARP-10, which stands for the Sewer Assessment and Rehabilitation Program, which is a 10-year program where their program manager managed all the infrastructure repairs and so forth for the state of Memphis. So the program was established. Uh, you know, they hired the program manager. So we began working on SOP 10 program back in 2015. And actually, we're currently still working on this program. This, uh, this is year 10 of this program. And, and what I'm hearing is probably another five or six more years of worth of work. So yeah, that that this allowed us a great opportunity to grow our business because we were able to get constant contracts and 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 was able to kind of build our infrastructure and hire more people and uh so it's been a it's been a, a great ride. Just to add a little more to that, you know, one of the challenges with smaller firms such as ours at that time was finding connectivity so that we could keep consistent, you know, profitable work. So mm -hmm. the city sewer, which was aging as most municipalities, so not like Memphis problem was necessarily unique to the to the to the to the country, but they decided to honor a consent decree uh, that that was um, an order that required them to develop a program to institute that program by assessing all their sanitary sewer make emergency repairs and basically upgrade the system to as Trail mentioned to limit uh sanitary sewer overflows uh, because that would be a couple of public nuisance so the city you know was very very good about attacking this and adhering to that order and this big program came about they obviously needed diversity and so we fell into that space because we found that uniquely there were not a lot of companies similar to ours so that we basically went feeding and trying to be the best um, contractor that the program had in that hearing and, and just and we were able to obtain consistent opportunities so this has really helped grow our business tremendously and Another good thing about the state of Memphis too, mm -hmm. they wanted to hire and, and be more MBEs to work on this particular project. So they did a lot of work as far as reaching out to minority businesses and women-owned businesses to participate in this program, which was a win-win for us as well as other uh, MBEs and women-owned businesses. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that was, um you know, one of the questions I was going to bring up later is, is how helpful programs like that could be. I know I talk, um, you know, with um, the Clean Water Partnership, which helps minority owned and women owned businesses get contracts and stuff like that. So I'm wondering if you can talk about the experience of, of that program a little bit and why, um, you know, initiatives like that are, are so important to the industry. Well, it's very important to the industry because mm -hmm. again, it gives uh, opportunities to uh, less uh, fortunate businesses and uh, you know, MBE businesses as well as, well as women-owned businesses. It gives them opportunities to have consistent workflow so they can grow their business. It's hard to to compete against a larger company if you can't grow your business. So these sure. these opportunities gives you chances to have sustainable work, mm -hmm. build your workforce, and build your and build your skill level, which helps you grow your business. Where you can do more work, so these programs are paramount to uh, in the country. So it's the, they are they are win win for MBEs and women owned businesses. So yeah, we've been very blessed. Yeah, I could I was go a little step further in that you know 
if you think about it, you know, there are a lot of municipal projects that take place and a lot of them do not have, you know, diversity requirements. Mm-hmm. Uh, they, you know, MBEs and women-owned businesses miss out on opportunities because they're just really not there for them because they're small and they don't have the insurance, the surety funding, and so forth to compete with larger firms. Mm-hmm. So programs such as this being a massive program with diversity requirements to adhere to the city's p- protocols just provides opportunities for the right companies to grow, learn, and advance. So it's been, it's been very good. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm wondering if you can expand a little bit on the diversity requirements you were just mentioning that, that some cities have and, and what those typically entail. Well, the city of Memphis has, like, on, on most, on all of their municipal or construction projects, they have typically a 30% MBE requirement. Okay. Just a great uh, requirement for, again, MBEs, because if that's a large project, that particular prime contractor has to contract with the MBE and allow them to do at least 30% of those projects. So those projects help, uh, MB businesses tremendously. So I, 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 you know, with the city of Memphis being attentional and having a, you know, a system in place that mandates mm-hmm. that MBEs participate, it's been a win-win for a lot of MBEs as well as women-owned businesses. So it's, it's a great program and uh, we have been very fortunate. Yeah, I do think that, um, yeah, Memphis really has a pretty solid program, but a lot of, you know, municipalities larger cities, you know, they do, they have those sure. requirements that because they're, they're oftentimes are seeking federal funds. So to be adhered to the federal guidelines, they must have um, a diversity requirement that they have to adhere to. So that gives opportunities to MBEs and women-owned businesses such as ours. And we think that it's, it's a win-win for both the, the cities as well as the contract because you end up building out uh, uh, struggling smaller businesses, if they seek these opportunities, it really gives them a leg up to to grow. And right, and we're able to hire you know more of the of the local workforce, which again benefits the city because it creates a larger tax base. So right. it's a win for the city as well as the businesses. Yes. Right. Yeah, that's that's a great point. And you mentioned workforce, which I was going to ask about next. And I'm so I'm wondering since you know you you guys have been in the industry for so long, how have you, you know, seen the, you know, DE&I diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and diversity initiatives change over those years? Do you, you know, and, and what do you think can be done to, to help improve that even further? Yeah, diversity and equality and inclusion is important in the workplace to make mm-hmm. opportunities for everyone, to have a fair opportunities in business and the workplace. This country is better serve if we all able to fully participate in the American dream. Right. We all know poverty is a, a systematic problem and must establish opportunities for the, for the least in order mm-hmm. for this country to maintain competitors in the world market. So if we all rise up together, we all benefit and help to make this country better. We just, you know, having some people in one place and 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 the pop and and the poverty folk at another level, we need to bring up everybody together because it benefits the the whole world. So uh that's Diversity, equality, and inclusion is very important. Yeah, I, and I would say too that you know, being in the industry as long as we have, being in this market, 
we've seen a tremendous uh, uptick in opportunities for minorities. And, you know, years ago, I will say there were very few, you know, MBEs that were doing well in the state of Memphis. Mm-hmm. Those economic opportunities, they were few and far between uh, because companies, you know, if it's just commercially, they did not necessarily have to adhere to, to necessary diversity requirements unless they had, you know, corporate policy within their organization. But with the municipalities and with this time that's going on, diversity has seemed to be not only just a catchphrase, but literally something that people will become more and more intentionally about doing. Well, we've seen a tremendous growth in diversity business, I mean, of MBE businesses and women-owned businesses in this area. And it's very nice to see because it really helps improve the economic situation of those who are less fortunate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I liked what you said about, you know, it, it, you know, a lot of the intention behind it, right? Because I feel like you're right. A lot of times these days, everyone is talking about being more inclusive and having more diversity, but there has to be intent behind that, right? Rather than just talking about it. Um, so I think that that was a, that was a great point that you brought up. Um, and I also wanted to ask, you know, right now we talked to a lot of professionals who mentioned that there's a a pretty big staffing shortage in the water industry. And I, I just want to get your guys's perspective on that. Is that what you're seeing? And, and what are you doing to try to, you know, fill that staffing shortage gap? Yes, that that's a problem for most companies uh, uh, actually here in Memphis and, and mm-hmm. across the country with staffing. I mean, we try to offer extra, you know, incentives. Uh, we 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 pay well. We have benefits. We have four hundred one k and insurances. Uh, we do offer training. We offer uh, uh, sign on bonuses. Sign on bonuses. Uh, uh, so we have to be great. very creative. Yeah. Because I will say, in our industry, um, some of the, some of the benefits trail just referenced were not necessarily um, uh, provided in our industry. Uh, years ago, mm-hmm. but because of the diversity and so forth that we participate in with municipalities, we've been able to afford us the opportunities to provide traditional benefits that are very helpful to retaining employees and keeping them again motivated and you know economically you know set. But right now, there are some things we are looking at to maybe offer some apprenticeships with high schools. We have to do more to include people so that they can be trained to understand the industry and opportunities. So, but yeah, there are some challenges we've had for sure, but um, thus far, you know, we've been able to retain and maintain a workforce to satisfy our clients. No, that's great to hear. And, and kind of going off of that, I did want to ask if either of you had some advice you could share with, with other business owners that you think have, have helped both of you, what, what could you tell them? Well, my advice would be to never give up. To if you've got a plan, work the plan. Uh, be flexible. Try to find your mentor. Try, try to find someone that you can lean on to kind of help guide you uh, in your operations on how to do things certain ways in the correct way where you can grow your business and uh, uh, always stay positive and never give up. That's that's kind of our motto. Yeah, I mean, I would also add, you know, one of the things we, we've always tried to do was be very intentional um, about ensuring that we comply with our clients' requirements, that we were basically a partner for our clients. Uh, we wanted them to think of us as an extension of their operation 
that they can depend on us to adhere, to follow through, show up on time, and do the work as they requested. So you really have to be really focused, laser focused on your client's needs and making sure that they feel as though you're an extension of them. That's that's all great. Thank you so much for sharing that. And but before I let you guys go, I did want to circle back to talk a little bit about WT WNT Contracting Corporation. I um, understand you guys recently just signed a subcontract to install all the site utilities at the new Ford Blue Oval plant. So I'm wondering if you can and tell us about that because it sounds like a, a pretty exciting uh, subcontract to have. Yes, this is our largest project to date. Uh, mm -hmm. So we you know we are tasked with installing all the site utilities. We're actually not on the entire site. We are working on only one particular site. It's a it's a very very large package, but this is a the site we're working on is called the TVAC. It's it's one site of the new Ford plant that's being built in Stanton, Tennessee. Okay. Our work generally consists of the sanitary sewer, the lift stations, storm drainage, which includes all the the structures and mm -hmm. the box coverage and so forth. Some site grading. You know, it's a massive package. Um, and uh, we also we have a JV partner that's partnering with us on this particular project. Uh, Magnolia Underground Construction is, uh, has we form a JV to, in order to to uh, complete this project. So this project is very demanding, uh, you know, very short time frames. But uh, you know we, we've had more personnel. We think we've got a good team in place, and you know we look forward to it. It's going to be a very cha it's challenging. It's a large project, but we think we we up up to the task, and we're going to. We're going to execute this work and hopefully make Ford happy. Yeah, yeah. It, it definitely, you know, again, our largest project, but we, we feel that, you know, our, our years of experience has brought us to this point that we're capable, we're willing, we're able, we have the staff, we have the team in place, again, to adhere to a very large client because we feel like we've been laser focused over the years, client satisfaction. So we're certainly not intimidated. So you look forward to it and uh, we're up to the task. Well, that's awesome. And, and congrats on that project. It sounds like a, a great opportunity. Um, Wiley and Terrell, you have answered all of my questions, but is there anything either of you wants to say but before I let you go? Yeah, well, first of all, thank, thanks for having us. Uh, we're, we're, we're always able and willing to share the industry that we love. Uh, we think storm, the water, uh, civil infrastructure is so critical to our, to our country that we just feel we're very passionate about it. Yeah, absolutely. And we contribute, and we think we are, and we yeah. want again continue to bring people along to to ensure they have those opportunities to to grow a, a very important industry. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> One thing I'd like to say, yeah, we we feel like we take we love what we do. I mean, we don't even feel like this is work. I mean, so this is our passion. You know, this is what we what we love to do, and we want to be able to help others. So uh, we feel blessed to be in the industry that we love, uh, water. We are very fortunate. Awesome. Well, Wiley and Terrell, thank you both so much for joining me today. I really appreciate it, and um, we'll we'll keep in touch. And and I'd love to see all, all the work you guys do on the on the plant. So thanks so much for sharing all your insight and thoughts with us today. Thank you so much. Thank for you. Right. Thank you so much, Wiley and Terrell, for taking the time to talk with me and share your story. I really appreciate it. Um, before we wrap up our episode, we have a little housekeeping, so I will throw it back to Bob. 
Yeah, so first things first, I we are beginning our travel season here pretty soon, and I will be going first and foremost to the AWWA WEF YP Summit, which is in Sacramento, California, March 27th and 28th. I hope that I can see some of you there. I know that there are some young professionals who actually do listen to this podcast, so if you see me at the, at the show, please say hello. I'd love to get to know you a little bit better, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on the YP Summit, because I certainly love it every single year. And on that note of YPs, you can also nominate people for the 2023 WWD Young Pros today. Visit wwdmag.com nominate for links to nominate people for not only the young professionals, but also for the industry icon and also for our top projects program. So check that out. The deadline for submissions for the young pros is March 15th. So it's quickly approaching. Make sure that you get your nominations in, nominate yourself, nominate your friends or nominate your colleagues. Just tell us about the awesome rising stars within your organization that you think that we should be paying attention to. We'll feature 10 of them in the May-June issue of Wastewater Digest. And last but not least, please subscribe to our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash at Wastewater Digest. And for Stormwater Solutions, my housekeeping is almost identical to Bob's Our Young Pros <laughs> and Industry Icon nominations are open. So everything he said, I'm just... Listen to that again because it's the same. If you have any rising stars in the stormwater sector that you think would be a great young pro, please nominate them. We will feature 10 professionals in our May-June issue and do video interviews with them. Um, and if you know a, a longtime industry leader, they'd probably be a great industry icon. And you can nominate for both those programs at www.estormwater.com nominations. Nominations for both of those are due by March 1st. Um, and then finally, don't forget, we do have the discount code for those who want to attend StormCon. It is in Dallas from August 29th to 31st. And you can have a 10% off if you use code 1WATER10, all caps, when registering. Visit bit.ly slash stormconreg2023 to do so now. With that, thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, subscribe, share on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, and Spotify. You can also reach us at TalkingUnderwater at EndeavorB2B.com. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at TUW Podcast. Have a great day. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.